Well, this morning we're beginning together a, a series of Sunday morning um, kind of dives, talks, explorations on this theme of being led by love. Um, we're going to look today at Revelation chapter 1. If you want to find it in a Bible, it's a really easy book to find. It's the last book of the Bible, so just open it somewhere and turn right until you get to the end. Uh, Revelation, once you've found that book, we're looking for the first chapter. There'll be a big one somewhere. I'm going to start reading at verse 4. I actually want to land on chapter 2, uh, on a letter that Jesus pens for a church, dictates uh, to somebody. But uh, Greek letters often started with the person that was sending it, rather than waiting till the end. Uh, and with this letter, it is so important that we grasp who is writing these words. So as you listen, hear who writes to you today, who speaks to you. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Christ Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll all you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Simmer, uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was somebody like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet, his feet were like, burnet, like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, 
And behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, and what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who overcome, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Lord Jesus, might we today, as we listen deeply to your word, be those who have ears to hear what your Spirit is saying. Lord, in view of who you are and what you've done, that you have something to say to us today, something to write to us. Jesus, might we not miss this moment. Open our ears and our lives to you today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We want to be a people, a church, who are led by love. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be thinking about three big themes around this, that love leads us to believe. One of the core pillars of what it means to be church uh, is to be deeply connected with God. We cannot hope to lead others where we haven't been ourselves. So that's where we're going to begin, to believe, to be led by love to believe, and how believing in Jesus leads us to love. Uh, More than that, then, we want to be led by love to belong to what Jesus is doing. Uh, He's got a purpose in the earth. He's got a family that he's growing. He's got work that he's doing. And you and I are invited to be part of that together. And I'm excited about that. But it's love that leads us to belong. And then belonging leads us to love. And then finally, it's not some sort of holy huddle. It's not just about me and what I feel like and how I'm doing. We want to befriend others. That's another pillar of what it means to be church, to connect deeply with others so that they can come in on this greatest news, the greatest invitation this world has ever been offered, the greatest news any human being can ever hear, the greatest news this world has ever been graced with. Uh, And love leads us to befriend, and befriending leads us to more love. So we're going to start this morning with believing what it means to be connected uh, with God. 
I did promise not to mention the coronation too many times, so I'll just mention it once more. I think this is the last time, and then we'll move on. How many people here this morning watched the coronation yesterday? Yeah, no shame at all. If you didn't watch it, just pop a hand up. Shame on you, honestly, you <laughs> bunch of Republicans. Honestly, no, no shame at all. Uh, I was watching it, and there was a number of things that struck me. If I'm honest, one of the major things that struck me was the ability of the commentators to keep talking. It was just impressive, wasn't it? I don't, don't know if they had notes. I'm sure they'd done some prep beforehand. Uh, but hour after hour of just filling us in on, ah, oh, so this was from so-and-so, and that person is so-and-so. They kept talking. and Some of it was very, very interesting. One part that I found quite interesting were the horses uh, that were kind of going in front of everyone else. And at one point, uh, the person talking, I think it was Claire Balding at this point, who should know a thing or two about horses, uh, she was talking about the Windsor Greys. Did you hear this bit? Uh, and there was a horse right at the front. And the horse at the front of a, a, any sort of uh, entourage like this is called a pointer. And it's really important that the pointer knows the route, because the other horses are basically following that horse. This pointer was a horse called Wilbur, who was actually a rescue horse which I thought was lovely, a police horse that had been uh, chosen for this kind of crucial role, really. And it got me thinking about this series that we're in and starting together, about when it comes to following Jesus, saying, my life is not going to be about me, it's going to be about what Jesus wants. And I'm going to give my time, my agenda, myself to what he's doing. I want to follow him, I want to be like him. It made me ask the question, well, what do we put in front of all of that? Because there's a lot involved, isn't there? There's a lot of different things to remember. There's a lot of different themes. So what, what comes first when we follow Jesus, when we open his word and we read it? What's it a book that's about when I'm making choices for myself and my life and my work and my family? What, what kind of things should feature highly? What should I put at the front that I should be following? Uh, there was one time when a group of people came to Jesus. And back in the day, I know you'll find this hard to believe these days, but religion was a real source of, of division. I know that's hard to understand and believe, but it was. There was a time when that was true. And a whole bunch of Jewish people were having arguments about who the cleverest person was and who knew the most scriptures and who could summarize it the best. And, one of the key things of the day, one of the key challenges in Jesus' day was, can you explain the first five books of the Bible, the law, the Torah, the books of Moses, can you put that into the best nutshell? Can you whittle it down into the best sort of pithy phrase that people can remember? And people were having a go at this. And so they came to Jesus with this same kind of challenge, really. They said to him, what is the greatest commandment? If you had to pick a horse to put at the front of this thing to be a pointer, what's it going to be? And for Jesus, he just picks two things. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is like it. You will love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. The New Testament really is just people writing about what that means. Paul in one letter says that all the rest of the law and the prophets, the rest of the whole of the Old Testament hangs on these two things. Uh, there's a fascinating ancient commentary on this moment. 
that says actually what Jesus is doing is far deeper than this. In a day when it was about what, how many verses you could quote or how right you could be, Jesus is moving the conversation somewhere deeper and says it's not about who can be the most right, it's about who can be the most loving. What's the horse that you need to put right at the front of this thing? The focus, the priority. Loving God with all I've got. And loving others as much as I love myself. Then towards the end of Jesus' ministry, he has this meal before he walks the way of the cross and shows them what his kind of love looks like. And he says to them, then a new commandment now I give you. I want you now to love one another. Now, this sounds familiar, but here's the new bit. As I have loved you. So no longer just loving each other as I'd like to be loved, but as Jesus has loved me. I was reading recently uh, um, some books on, on leadership, and there was a question that has sort of got under my skin, really. Uh, stuck with me, and I want to give it to you, and I hope it gets under your skin as well. It said, I've rarely seen a church that is arranged around the two commandments to love God with all we've got and to love others as Jesus has loved us. And I thought to myself, well, could we try that? Could we arrange our lives, ourselves, around that? So that if anybody came in one Sunday and wondered, what is, what are these, what's this group of people doing, you know? I know they sing and I know they pray, but what's the purpose, what's the point of this bunch of people that they could see really clearly? They're loving God with all they've got and loving other people like Jesus has loved them. Don't you long to be part of a church like that? At its core, see, that's what we're here for. You know, for any reason, we could be booted off YouTube tomorrow. We could, I pray it doesn't happen, but this building could burn down. But we could still be a people that gathered to love God with all we've got. To love others as much as Jesus has loved us. It's going to take all of us, isn't it? Encouraging, supporting, inspiring one another. It's going to take the Holy Spirit at work in me and at work in you to do this. I, I cannot do this on my own. I don't have the capacity to. And that's exactly where Jesus loves to lead me. Because then I've got to lean into him and his power. I remember uh, years ago in school having a, a fantastic music teacher. If I'm honest, there's not a lot of teachers I, I remember. I tend to remember the really bad ones and the really good ones. Our music teacher, uh, Mr. Wickham, his name was. Uh, incredibly inspiring guy. I remember when we started GCSE Music, he played a, a piece of Beethoven's music that we were going to study together. Uh, and it was all right. You know, it was a bit of classical music. It was very, very loud and exciting and all the, all the rest of it that you'd expect a Beethoven symphony to be. But then he started to show us these little bits. He said, now, you listen to this little motif, this little sort of collection of notes there. That's going to be important. And I want you to listen to that whole symphony again and just try and catch those notes and you, you suddenly realized that those little notes that you hear maybe on a flute somewhere were later on played by, by some bass instruments or some French horns and eventually swelled up uh, to become the main theme. 
And it's beautiful, isn't it, when you get a teacher or a guide like that who can show you things that were there that you didn't see before. I'll be honest, when Linda was preaching a couple of weeks ago and talking about that painting, uh, I knew that there was no door handle on it. I knew you were going to say that, but there was so much more. And the more you spoke about it, the more I could see depth in it that I'd never seen before. And Jesus is taking the Old Testament here and telling people, it's about love. I know you've got lost in all of these rituals and, and rules, but notice this, love. And notice it here, love. And notice it here, love. Because when you see it, you can't unsee it. When you hear it, you can't unhear it. Love. This letter that we just read from earlier, Revelation, was written by a man called John. John, who came to know Jesus in his earthly life and really had an intimate, a very special relationship. The others gave them a nickname. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. Not that he didn't love the others, but there was a, a deep understanding, a rich relationship between the two. John seems to get things uh, earlier than, than others, seems to see things that others miss. And John has this really deep relationship with Jesus. Then after the cross and the resurrection, as the disciples spread out, uh, John has this ministry taking the message of Jesus to different parts of the world. And eventually, this gets him in trouble, talking about love and grace and peace and hope gets him in trouble. And eventually, this elderly man called John, who just insists that God is love and so we should love one another, was so dangerous that he's exiled on this island. That's the actual island, the island of, of Patmos. Uh, the locals will tell you that they still know the cave, and who knows, if it wasn't that cave, it was one like it. There's the cave where John sat and had this incredible encounter but when he sees this Jesus that he's known so intimately, he's laid on his chest, that's how well he's known him. When he sees him in all his risen glory, John falls at his feet, though dead. It's just too much. Overcome in the presence and power of Jesus. And then Jesus gives him these letters. He dictates these things that he wants to send to these seven churches. Uh, now, there's a, a, an area in Asia Minor where there were these seven different churches. Uh, if you know the, the Bible or the story well, you'll know that seven is a significant number. It kind of means wholeness, completeness, perfection. And so when we hear that Jesus is writing to seven churches, effectively he's saying, I'm writing to all the church. And when he talks here about holding the seven stars in his hand, it, it's a word in the Greek that means to hold completely, to hold fully. Jesus holds the church in his hands. That's who's writing these words. Uh, that's who this letter is from. Uh, and Jesus starts to talk to them about the things that he's seen. Uh, I love the description that he is the one who holds the stars in his hand uh, and is also the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, a symbol of the church. Yes, the Jesus whose presence is so glorious that John rightly collapses before him is also the one who walks among us, present within his people, his purpose, his church. And the letter starts with these sort of glowing things that, that Jesus has noticed. He says to them, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, 
and have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. The church that Jesus is writing to here is a collection of believers that were scattered across a large city called Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was a really important place. It wasn't the capital of the area by title, but it kind of was in every other way. There were roads that fed into it, massive amounts of trade, lots of different people, real sort of uh, cosmopolitan kind of place, uh, lots of different races and nationalities and beliefs. And One of the things that was there was the temple to um, Diana, one of the seven wonders of the world, the worship of one of the, the, the ancient uh, Greek and, and, and Roman gods, all happening there. Uh, and around this sort of young church, there were these other pressures as well. Uh, there was a large Jewish community. And one of the things that they wanted to say is, yes, if you want to follow your rabbi, if you want to follow Jesus, that's fine. But you can't jettison the law. So you've still got to meet on the Sabbath. You've still got to eat certain things and wear certain things. and All those kind of laws that came with it. And so there was this pressure on one side uh, to follow Jesus, but to have this baggage, have all these extra rules with them. Uh, on the other side was a group called the Nicolaitans. Uh, now, they believed that following Jesus gave them a blank check, that if Jesus can forgive you and cleanse you, lifestyle doesn't really matter. You can do what you want. You can live how you want to. And so there were these two sort of opposing pressures pressing down uh, on the church, as well as all the pagan culture that existed around them. And so Jesus says to them, I can see how hard it is. I know your deeds. Every time you choose something that's going to hurt you, it's going to hurt your business, it's going to hurt your friendship, I can see that. I, I acknowledge that. Your hard work, your perseverance, you've, you've kept going. You've not let go. You've pressed in. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. Jesus effectively says to this church in Ephesus, when it, when it comes to discernment, you're red hot. You can smell heresy a mile off. You know those people who are claiming to have the message of Jesus but don't. You've persevered, endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. What a church, right? Humanly speaking. This is impressive stuff. And then Jesus goes on to say, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Interesting that Jesus doesn't say, there's just one extra thing to be in the mix. or There's one thing that we could do with tweaking or focusing on for a season. Hold it against you, Jesus says. In all the doing, in all the discerning, in all the activity, in all the striving, something's been lost. And it's not just a little something. Your first love. Your first love. It's interesting, isn't it? We can line up the horses in all kinds of ways. Sometimes we can get the cart right before the horse. This was a church that had truth right out in the front and had it right. This was a church that had perseverance right out the front and, and was doing it well. This was a church that was keeping going when times were tough. But Jesus says underneath all of that, something's been lost. Something is lacking. Something is missing. 
your first love. Other translations put it this way, the love you had at first. I want to invite each one of us this morning to think back to that season of our lives. For some of us, it was a very dramatic moment when we went from disbelieving that maybe Jesus existed, possibly a good person, to believing that he died for us. For some of us, that was a very rapid journey, very dramatic. For others of us, it was a longer journey. For some of us, that was when we were younger, grew up in churches. For those of us, we discovered that later in life, maybe through a group of people, like an alpha course. But just think back to what that time was for you. And think about the passion that you had. The excitement you felt. The enthusiasm. Your first love. The love you had at first. It kind of chimes with some words that Jesus says to the people of Israel, uh, that God says to the people of Israel uh, through the prophet uh, Jeremiah. There in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. God, through the tears of Jeremiah, is calling the people back to remember. There was a time you upped and left and followed me through the desert. And I remember that devotion, a youthful devotion, a, a kind of honeymoon passion. We talk about honeymoon periods for stuff, don't we? And this is really what Jesus is talking about here. I miss that, Jesus says. The excitement you felt, the energy your love had. Yeah, I can see you. I can see the work you're doing. See the roots you're putting down in my word. And all of that is great, but the horse at the front is missing. And I miss that first love. I miss it in you. This has been reminding me this week of, of two different songs. One is a relatively recent kind of modernist song by a guy called Michael W. Smith. And the song is called Missing Person. And the song is about somebody who's lost that passion. And then as the song goes on, you realize that he's singing about himself. And one of the verses said, guarded and cynical now, can't help but wondering how my heart evolved into a rock beating inside of me. Where's that feeling that I don't feel? And I wonder if for some of us today, that's a, a description of what's happening. That once there was a heart of flesh that beated for Jesus, it somehow become a rock. Where is that feeling that I don't feel? You could look at that really as a, as a sort of modern retake on an ancient hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with God. Some of you will recognize these words, I'm sure. Where is the blessedness I knew? When I first saw the Lord, these are fantastic words. Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Oh, for a closer walk with God. Can you remember it? There were moments for me, I find, of real homesickness. For that time when things were clearer, things were easier. And Jesus says to this church, first of all, 
remember the height from which you have fallen. Such a vivid image, isn't it? Remember the height from which you have fallen. You can't fall from a height without damage being done. And it's easier when you're in pain to stay down on the floor where it's safer. But will you just remember for a moment where you were? A time when you didn't have to ask, am I going to church this Sunday? It wasn't a question. Of course I'm going to be there. A time when you didn't have to wrestle with finding space to, to read God's Word. You wanted to read it. That was, that's where your heart was. Times when nothing else would, would distract you. And it's easy, isn't it, to just over time to allow that to shift, to evolve from a heart to a rock. Nobody wakes up one day and thinks, I want to be guarded and cynical. But over time, we start believing the darkness over the light. We let it creep in like a gradual dawn until it's gone. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. He calls us to remember where we were. And then he tells us to repent and to do the things we did at first. Now, the word repent, I'm sure you're not surprised to hear someone in church using the word repent. But actually, in its original language, it just literally means to change your mind. It's a picture of doing a 180 turnaround, of going in this direction and changing your mind and going in another. And Jesus is calling the church here. If you want to get your hearts in the right place, then it starts in your head. You're going to have to change your mind on a few things. Change your mind on, on what you're doing. Repent and do the things you did at first. Maybe for some of us here today, there, there was something that fed us and nourished that faith. Maybe it was a group of people uh, or a place or a song or a book. And we need to actually physically just go back there and do that again and rediscover what it is that we had then. But Jesus is calling us back to him. One question I've had sort of this week as I've been thinking about that is, is how do we get back there? How do we move from where we are to there? And it got me thinking about how this book begins, how this letter begins, with a vision of Jesus. Before we get to this letter, it, it gets to, to worship. And in worship, we hear these words, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. In worship, we're reminded, aren't we, of, of who it is that we serve. The glorious, powerful, who was and is and is to come. Eyes like blazing fire. Double-edged sword is word flowing out of his mouth, a voice like rushing waters, and him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood. I don't know if we can get back to our first love without realizing and remembering who it is who first loved us. And I don't know who you are today or what your experience has been of Jesus or his people or his church. I do know that some people can be very beaten up by the church, very hurt by it. And maybe there are some of us here today who wouldn't perhaps want to admit it in a public sphere, but carry those scars, carry those bruises. 
sometimes that can leave us tainted with how Jesus feels about us and who Jesus is. But I want you to hear this today. He loves you. And He's shed His blood to free you. And to make you not just part of this kingdom, but each and every one of us a priest. Full access to the fullness of God. That's who Jesus is. And that's where he wants you to be. A couple of weeks back, I, I came across a, a blog, and it was, it was called Candidly Christian. And the title alone just, just drew me in, Candidly Christian. And a whole bunch of people who were writing about just struggles, what it's like to try and follow Jesus. And one of them was, was this woman. She wrote about a season of her life when she first became a Christian and was following Jesus and was part of it all, really loving it all. And then she realized that there was this sort of anxiety growing up inside her. Uh, sometimes if she went to speak to somebody and they didn't immediately kind of smile back and chat back to her or she heard about other things that were happening, groups that were forming and she wasn't part of it, that would devastate her. And she'd go home and lie in bed just getting anxious about why these people don't invite me and why these people don't accept me and uh, why these people don't, don't know me. And she realized that this desire to please people had become this all-consuming thing in her life. She writes about a time when she was praying and asking the Holy Spirit uh, to help her to become the kind of person that these people would like. And she heard this voice in her heart say to her, what if you're already the kind of person that I like? She describes this healing that flows. This love that just enveloped her and surrounded her. And we all want to be liked. None of us want to be unpopular. <laughs> Let's be honest about it. But the power that comes of knowing you are loved by Jesus. The Jesus who sees behind the smile and behind the success and behind the struggles and deeper than the scars. The Jesus who knew everything about you before he gave his life to rescue you. When he tells you that he loves you, it's going to be like nobody else, like nothing else. Because he knows. He sees. He understands. And that's the love that Jesus wants to overflow into our hearts and out into our worlds. To him who loves us. He's freed us from our sins by his blood has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I want to finish just with um, two pictures before we come and respond together. Anybody um, tea drinker? A few people. Uh, you a bunch of coffee drinkers. Eh? Well, I can lecture you on coffee later on. We'll go with tea. Uh, anybody teapot when it comes to tea? Yeah, excellent. Yeah. If you've ever had this, you'll know it, it is better. But most of us, when we make a cup of tea, don't do the loving thing of getting a teapot, cleaning it out, dropping the tea bags in, giving it time in a teapot. What is it? What's the word? I've heard about five different words. Brew. A brew. Stew. Ah, okay. Oh, infuse. That's it. Infuse. 
I'm really glad I asked this question this morning. But most, most of us don't do that. Most of us get the tea bag, get some boiling water, and try and squeeze out as much as we can, as quickly as we can, because we're very important people that haven't got time to properly make a cup of tea. And I wonder sometimes if that's a picture of my relationship with Jesus. Jesus, what is it that you've got to say to me? What have I got to do? Rather than allowing his presence and his passion for me to infuse, saturate, to change. The other picture I had uh, this week was I heard about in the news um, a screening of a film. And in the lead up to the film, one of the trailers went horribly wrong. And they showed the visuals of a film, the latest Transformers film, which if you don't know is about robot lorries that beat each other up. Effectively, that's what it is. Uh, and they were showing the visuals for that, but the audio got mixed up, and they were playing a song from The Little Mermaid over this, <laughs> over this video. Which I think, I think works great. Up where they walk, up where they run, I could see it. I could see it working. And I was thinking about the struggles that we face and the life that we lead, about how amazing it would be if this song of our Savior was playing over every battle. What if I already like you just as you are? I love you and have freed you from your sins by my blood. It's awesome, isn't it, to be reminded of it here, but it'll be tomorrow and Tuesday and through the course of this week when I'll need to hear that over the battle, over the struggle. So that's my prayer for us today, is firstly that we might just be saturated, we might receive something afresh of the love of God. And that that, that song, that truth, might stay with us, more catchy than any other song, might be heard in our heart of hearts, right where we need it, right where we need it most. So I'm just going to invite us all to bow our heads for just a moment, to pray together. The worship team are going to come and we'll sing together some songs, but I just want to pray and I also want to offer an opportunity today that as we're singing, if you'd like somebody just to pray with you, if there's been, as we were hearing earlier, that there needs to be an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying, if there's been a deafness or something blocking the, the message of Jesus, I just want to invite you to come and I'd love to pray for you some space just off to the side of the platform on, on my left. Uh, and if you'd like somebody to pray with you, please just go sit down. I, and if there's others, uh, we'll, we'll come and surround you with prayer. But just for a moment, I want you to think about your first love. Jesus remembers that. and wants to call us into and deeper into that. When the Apostle Paul prayed for this same church in Ephesus, he prayed that they, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all God's holy people to grasp how long and high and wide and deep is the love of Christ.
and to personally experience this love which surpasses human knowledge that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And if that sounds like a big prayer, he ends it by praying to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within you, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So Father, today I pray that however wide or long or high or deep we think your love is, would you expand our vision today? Would you deepen our experience? Would you cause us, Lord, I pray, just to be infused by, to remain in, to sit with this love? A love that is greater than any other affirmation or acceptance that we can experience in this life. For anyone here, God, who is hurting or grieving or broken or anxious or scarred or searching, I pray right now in your presence, would you pour out the overflow of your passion upon us? Father God, would you fill this place with your love and with your grace. Until, Lord, we are led by love. Until all else finds its rightful place behind the call to love you and to love others.